Hello, this is a free call from an inmate from the main state prison, Warren. To accept this free call, press zero. To refuse this free call, hang up or press one. This call is from a correction facility and is subject to monitoring and recording. This is Our Prisons the Answer, a monthly show on Justice Radio with your hosts, Catherine Besterman and Leo Hilton. Today, we are talking with musician and podcaster Samuel James and ACLU Policy Council Michael Cabetta about race, rights, incarceration, transforming power, and the legacy of intentional efforts to establish Maine as a white state. I'm Leo Hilton, and I come to this show not only as someone with lived experience in the criminal legal system, but also as a co-instructor with Catherine at Colby College and a restorative justice scholar practitioner of five years. I am Catherine Bestman, an abolitionist educator at Colby College. For the past year and a half, we have worked together to envision community-based alternatives to our current criminal legal system. This show explores how we keep our communities safe and asks the question, are prisons the answer? So Sam, talk to us about your podcast. You created the podcast 99 years with a focus on the intentional creation of Maine as a white state. What made you want to do that? And what are a couple of things you've learned along the way? Uh, yeah, well, thank you, Leo. Um, and Catherine for having me. It's um, 99 years is... I call it uh, black exploration of the deliberate creation of the whitest state in the nation. Um, and it, it came because uh, I've been writing about race in Maine for a number of years. Uh, I was the staff writer for black girl in Maine for about five years. I've had a long running column called racisms in uh Mainer magazine. And these patterns sort of establish if you start to concentrate on any kind of topic for long enough. And like, there's this history of of Maine uh, that is very deliberate that we just kind of don't talk about. Um, when I uh, introduce this idea, I like to bring up this guy named Matthew da Costa, and Matthew da Costa was the very first black person to set foot on what is now Maine. It was in 1608, um, and he was a translator or interpreter for uh, French explorers. And so. Um, you know, this is before the pilgrims and, you know, it's very likely unless you've heard the podcast or heard me talk about this in the past, this is probably the first time you've heard of this guy, Matthew DaCosta. And, you know, of course, right. Why would you know about some random 
French explorer, right? Um, from hundreds and hundreds of years ago. But because this was all Wabanaki territory at the time, so was Southeastern Canada. And that means da Costa was also the first black person to set foot in Canada. And in Canada, uh, he has a bio on the national website. There are children's books written about him. And in 2017, they put him on a stamp. And so this is a nationally celebrated figure just over the border. Um, and here on this side of the border, it's, it's almost thought of as like silly that you would even know who he is. And that discrepancy in expectation and in knowledge and in, uh, in history uh, is, is deliberate. And so the podcast concentrates on three things specifically. One is the place names battle, which is until 1977, there were places all over the state called Nigger Road, Nigger Hill, Nigger Island, on and on and on. Nobody did anything about it until the first uh, black man to be elected to the state legislature. Gerald Talbot put up a bill in 1977. Another thing I talk about is Malaga Island, which is a place where there were black and mixed race people living on an island in the Casco Bay up until 1912, when the governor uh, exiled them and pushed them from their homes, specifically because they were black. And the third thing is in 1923, uh, the city of Portland, Maine, put into effect a white supremacist form of uh, municipal government uh, that excluded and subjugated black people. And it did it, uh, <laughs> it's still in effect right now. Uh, the podcast talks about these things these three historical things. And then it follows, uh, there was an attempt in Portland to change that government, to go back to a mayoral form of government. The government we all sort of think that we have in our cities and towns uh, that we don't have here. We have something called the city manager form of government. I'm in Portland now. And uh, there was a charter commission that was put into effect. And my other co-guest today, Michael Cabetta was the chair of that charter commission and uh, led the effort to um, to rid Portland of its white supremacist form of government. And that's essentially what the podcast is. But along the way, it gets into national history. We talk about how these, essentially this thing starts because up until 1865, the vast majority of black people in this country lived in the South. Uh, when abolition happened, there were Jim Crow laws put into the South to uh, subjugate black people and then in the 1910, the Great Migration started. Black people started moving away from the Jim Crow laws, but there were white supremacists who were powerful in positions in the North and in Maine as well, and started putting those laws and those ideas into effect uh, in other places, including, including Maine. Thanks, Sam. This is fascinating and such important history. Two questions. Um, tell our listeners where to find your podcast. Uh, but the more complicated question, I guess, is um, detail out for our listeners why this, why this matters. Like, why is this stuff we need to know about 100 years later? Sure. Uh, so the podcast is just 99yearspod.com, or you can just wherever podcasts, wherever you get them, they're there. It's a five-episode series. The episodes range from 18 minutes to 25 minutes. They're just roughly 20-minute episodes. The first season is completely out now. The Why it's important, sure, uh, there's that old adage, right, that if who those who are uh, ignorant of their history uh, are condemned to repeat it. And I think what that leaves out is that uh, individuals are not really in charge of knowing our history. Uh, we're taught it. And there are some people who are, who benefit from you not knowing your history. And those people have a pattern 
and that pattern is that they do great uh, and we continue to not do great. And so if you have, you know, in the case of Portland specifically, well, Portland is a segregated city. The, the, the majority of black people live in District 2. District 2 has, it's the only, up until, up until the most recent election was the only place that had a black woman uh, city councilor. Uh, Rachel Talbot Ross, that's part of her representation as well as District 2, another Black woman. So, like, you can see that the other part, that, not to spoil the podcast or to spoil uh, recent history, but uh, the outcome of the election to change the government was that it failed. It failed in four out of five districts. District 2, however, voted to pass it, to change the government. And so it's important because you continue to live in this uh, this state and you continue to kind of get, we continue to be told, uh, you know, that things are better, that things are improving. But I think you can tell at least from the outcome of that election and where the votes came that things things aren't. Things can get more complicated and it doesn't necessarily mean that they get better. Yeah, I don't know. I feel like I could answer your question for a very, very long time. Oh, that's fabulous. Thank you. That's a perfect segue to the question uh, that we wanted to ask. Michael to lead off. So Michael, as policy counsel for the ACLU of Maine, you have worked consistently on all kinds of civil rights issues, getting police out of schools, fighting for indigenous sovereignty, fighting against facial recognition as a racially biased form of identification. And as we've just heard, the push to change Portland city government to rid, rid the city of racism, at least in its governing structure, among lots of other struggles. Um, can you talk to us a little bit about what this, what are the struggles involved with fighting for civil rights in the 2000s, like right now, and how do these compare to the fight of a, fights of 100 years ago that Samuel's been talking about in his podcast? In other words, what are the through lines for you? Sure. Thank you, uh, Catherine. One correction is that the work that I did on the Charter Commission uh, was not done in my uh, capacity as ACLU Policy Council. There was four foot thick concrete wall between everything I did for the ACLU and everything I did on the Portland Charter Commission. That said, I do think the ideas and principles that animated that part of my work also animated the work that I've been doing for the last uh, three and a half years for the ACLU of Maine. So the movement that Sam details extremely well in his podcast and in a wonderful article for the Mainer, now renamed the Bollard, to transform Portland's government into a council manager or a strong manager form of government started during the reconstruction period in the late 19th century. And that is also when there was essentially a second founding of the United States government on the principles in the 13th, 14th, and 15th amendments to the US Constitution, but especially the 14th amendment to the US Constitution. The 14th amendment basically rewrote the founding uh, principle of the United States government. The uh, idea of an equal, the equal protection of the laws, um, a definition of citizenship, which the constitution never defined citizenship when it was first ratified in the late 18th century, the idea of birthright citizenship, which is actually why I am an American citizen. My parents are from Ethiopia. I was born in the United States uh, under the 14th Amendment. I'm an American citizen. Might not have been true if I was born you know, in 1866. But the uh, Civil War Amendments or Reconstruction Amendments created a new basis for the United States. And during the 
two decades after the Civil War, there was more progress toward racial justice than in the 60 years after that. The Freedmen's Bureau, which sought to put uh, an economic base underneath the 4 million formerly enslaved Black people in the United States, and the rest of the effort by the federal government to um, repair the harms of uh, centuries of slavery uh, was off to a good start. Uh, but the essentially revolution, uh, the second founding of the United States, uh, created a counter-revolution. And the counter-revolution was the, where the Jim Crow system came from. Uh, and that counter-revolution is essentially uh, the thing that spawned the white supremacist movement that Sam details extremely well in his podcast, and the white supremacist movement that uh, spurred the um, council manager form of government uh, systems uh, all throughout the United States. The way I think about Sam's work uh, with respect to the um, movement to establish strong manager systems throughout the country is the way I think of W.B. Du Bois's analysis of the Reconstruction period. So before Du Bois's Black Reconstruction in America, uh, there was um, a dominant historical school led by this guy, William Dunning, a Columbia University uh, history professor. And the Dunning School um, regarded Reconstruction uh, as a failure because Black people uh, made it so. Black people were too uh, uncivilized and inferior for the vote and for civil rights. And that was the dominant school when Du Bois was writing Black, Black Reconstruction in the 1930s. That dominant school was essentially propagandistic and nationalistic history and white supremacist history. And the uh, school against which Sam James constructs his podcast is essentially propagandistic uh, white supremacist history. And uh, I think the debt that Portland owes Sam uh, basically cannot be repaid. And uh, if this is where he stops producing any work, he's already made an indelible mark on uh, the recollection uh, and understanding of history in Portland. But to your question, what are the through lines between the period that Sam's podcast focuses a lot on and today? Over the last century, uh, and since the 2000s, virtually every major legal battle uh, over civil rights has involved the 14th Amendment, has involved the Equal Protection Clause, and has involved the definition of citizenship in the 14th Amendment, whether it's whether the children of undocumented immigrants are citizens of the United States, um, whether it's whether Black people have the effective right to vote, which the 15th Amendment supposedly guarantees and the Voting Rights Act of 1965 supposedly guarantees, um, whether it's the right to gay marriage, uh, whether it's the right to an abortion, all of these involve the 14th Amendment.
This is Our Prison's the Answer for Justice Radio. Today we are talking with musician, columnist, and podcaster Samuel James and ACLU Policy Counsel Michael Cabetta about race, rights, transforming power, and exploring the legacy of intentional efforts to establish Maine as a white state. We are learning about some of the untold history of Maine, including how the U.S. Constitution has failed to protect Black people, how the 14th and 15th Amendments fall short of their so-called guarantees, and how the battle for civil rights continues today. Michael, take it away. The battle to make the promise of equal protection and the civil rights, uh, real rights in the United States, was nullified and blocked by an extremely reactionary and white supremacist Supreme Court starting in the 1890s. You've all heard of uh, the Plessy versus Ferguson decision where the United States Supreme Court decided that you can have segregated facilities and the people who enjoy the amenities of the different facilities are still essentially equal under the law. The Plessy versus Ferguson decision held that separate uh, institutions um, were not inherently unequal. They could still be equal. And so for 70 years after that, or 60 years after that, until the Brown versus Board of Education decision, the United States Supreme Court uh, went through various areas of uh, human activity, economic justice, voting rights, various other rights, and essentially prevented the effective application of the 14th Amendment to uh, the citizens um, who were newly defined as citizens of the United States. Voting is one thing that's extremely central in all of this. One thing I recently learned was when Frederick Douglass first cast his vote in uh, the 1860s, he was essentially uh, a non-citizen uh, and voted illegally in uh, New York and um, was an illegal immigrant from uh, Maryland where he was enslaved to uh, upstate New York. Um, and the vote that he cast, he cast for a small fledgling abolitionist party. That kind of, you know, illegal, he eventually was able to vote uh, legally because he and others led the charge to establish the 15th Amendment. But uh, right now, one of the biggest boogeymen for the fascist movement that's threatening to um, overtake the United States is this notion of uh, illegal voting. Another dimension of this is that if we had full enfranchisement in the United States, it would be a totally different country. If in Florida, for instance, people with criminal records and people who are incarcerated could vote, you would never probably elect a Republican Congress or a Republican uh, president throughout the rest of the history of, of this country. Um, and the final thing I'll say in connecting the late 19th century to today is the issue of criminalization and policing and incarceration. Uh, so the 13th Amendment was one of the three Reconstruction Amendments passed in the late 19th century, right after the Civil War. And it banned uh, slavery except as punishment for a crime. Apparently there wasn't much debate about it. It was sort of boilerplate language. But shortly after the enactment of uh, that amendment, the South created a whole new infrastructure to reclassify recently emancipated 
Black Americans as convicts. And the South could restart production of the country's leading export at the time, which was cotton. Another dimension to policing and criminalization and racial justice is um, what W.B. Du Bois called the psychological wages of whiteness, where one dimension of it was free labor to um, get rich, to pick an ex extremely lucrative commodity, the oil of the time, cotton. But the other dimension was all of these immigrants from Europe could experience a sense of superiority wherever they went, uh, whenever they wanted, uh, through the humiliation of uh, Black people, through the systematized, constant, ubiquitous humiliation of Black people. Um, that kind of uh, systematic practice throughout the country was only possible with the collusion and knowledge of law enforcement. You can't have a lynching in the middle of a town if the police don't know about it and if the police don't condone it. Murder is a crime. Every legal system in the history of the world defines it as a crime. But in the United States, murder of Black people was uh, a ritualized part of um, the uh, white supremacist system that gave recent immigrants to, from Europe, uh, first, second, third generation immigrants from Europe, th this psychological wage. And the two facets of um, American uh, white supremacy, free labor on the one hand and ritualized systematized humiliation uh, were made possible through the criminal legal system, through um, police collusion on the one hand in uh, violence toward black people and through the criminalization of black people um, on the other hand, which partly explains how and why after the Richard Nixon presidency, the uh, carceral system ballooned to its current unprecedented size, unprecedented world history size. And it also explains uh, the disproportionate incarceration, punishment, murder of black people uh, all throughout the country, including in Maine. Maine in some respects is actually worse for disproportionately punishing black people uh, and that's partly what uh, led me to want to work for the ACLU and advocate for the things that you listed um, when you asked me your question. So powerful. Michael, Samuel, thank you. I think <laughs> if I had not done the self-education that, that I have over the years, I would have learned more in these last 20 minutes than I knew growing up in my entire history of learning history uh, in this state and through the school system. Michael, Samuel, thank you both so much for the work you do and for the education that you bring that is just, it's interesting to me as you have been speaking about the tenets that are taught in Black families, but that have been deliberately excluded from large-scale education in the U.S., um, so thank you both for doing that deep dive, for doing this work, for carrying this history forward. Um, this is what is necessary. This is what is needed. This is the history that needs to be uplifted and shared. So for our listeners, today we have heard Michael Cabetta from the ACLU and Samuel James, podcaster from 99 Podcast, 99 Years Podcast, which you can follow and you can find at 99 Years Pod 
www.maine.com. And together we have looked at the intentional creation of Maine as a white state, the battles that still exist today from that false founding and how there is this, there is this need to steward history to pass it down, to take that responsibility, to rectify what has gone unsaid and what continues to go unsaid. And we've also looked at the forming of racist government and how the fights that we're fighting today for civil rights are the same fights we were fighting generations ago. That the protections that, were, that have been written into the constitution in the 14th and 15th amendment have not been actually applied, have not been guaranteed, as Michael shared, right? The, that these are supposedly guaranteed protections, and yet somehow we continue to other people, we continue to marginalize people, we continue to allow people to suffer under these systems that perpetuate suffering. And so looking back at the history and looking at these seminal Supreme Court cases that we laud as having foundationally changed the experience of blackness in the US and yet the suffering still exists. And what does that suffering look like? And what does it feel like? And where do we go from here? Those are the questions that immediately come up for me. And those are the questions that I'm looking forward to really hearing from these strong, powerful black voices next week. So, Next week, we will continue this conversation with Samuel James and Michael Cabetta about race, rights, incarceration, transforming power, and the legacy of intentional efforts to establish Maine as a white state. We will also bring the conversation to bear on incarceration in Maine. With thanks to bluesman Samuel James for his gift of music that opens and closes each episode in our series, and to Emma Reynolds, our sound engineer, we are Justice Radio.